Matthew chapter 28. We are entering into the passage of the resurrection. Are you with me? Everybody there? Say amen if you've got Matthew 28 in front of your eyes in some fashion. All right. Starting in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. What is the first day of the week, by the way? Keep that in mind. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Everybody say these three words. As he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and, turn his and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pray and let's ask God to open our eyes to his word. Father, we ask that you would do just that. Not just our physical eyes, but the eyes of our soul. That we might see Christ this morning. That we might grasp him through faith in your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Genghis Khan, over his lifetime, conquered 4,810,000 square miles of land. Alexander the Great, throughout his lifetime, conquered 2.1 million square miles of land. Cyrus the Great, in his lifetime, conquered two million square miles of land. Attila, in his lifetime, conquered 1.4 million square miles of land. Adolf Hitler, everybody go, oh. In his lifetime, conquered 1.3 million square miles of land, all of which he lost, by the way, in three years' time. Napoleon Bonaparte, in his lifetime, conquered 720,000 square miles of land. Jesus Christ conquered death. <laughs> you tell me who's more powerful. None of these great names or infamous names ever conquered death. 
Someone once said that there is no statement which communicates the majesty and the completeness of Jesus conquering death like the statement that we have right here in verse 2 where it says, an angel of the Lord descended, came, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. Death has been conquered. The grim and sinister powers of the world have been rooted by the powers of heaven. He has been risen. What were those three words? As He said. You see, nobody should have been surprised by this. We knew this was coming because Jesus Christ Himself said, I'm going to rise from the dead. We see not only the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead, but Jesus knew He was going to be raised from the dead. Top that, Alexander the Great. He predicted and prophesied the fact that He will be raised from the dead. He did it as He said. You doubted Jesus? We thought that when He was hanging on the cross, it was the end, and we scurried, went looking for some place to hide. Why? He rose from the dead as He said. We have been tracking now through the book of Matthew for about a year. And we have finally come on Easter Sunday to this passage of the resurrection. And this is a a very important passage. This passage is given to us as historical proof that Jesus rose from the dead. It's meant to be that. You can deny that if you'd like. I'm just telling you it's meant to be for us historical proof that Jesus rose from the dead. Why is it so important to historically know that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, Paul tells us later in 1 Corinthians 15 that it's the very foundation of our faith. Meaning, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, what are we all doing here? What are we doing here? (laughs) I have a hundred other better things I could be thinking of doing than gathering with you people if Jesus did not rise from the dead. I'm just playing with you. We would do a barbecue. We would still hang out probably because I like you. Even outside of Christ, I still like you, all right? But we probably would be down at Druid Hill Park. Why are we together? Why are are you sitting here looking at me? (laughs) This is weird. Why are we singing songs together? Nobody does that in society. Like Christians are like the only people that get together and sing once a week. Sing along. What's going on? Why do we do this? It's because Jesus rose from the dead. Our entire faith hinges on the truth that is communicated right here in these ten verses. We're going to spend two weeks on the resurrection. Next week, part two. Uh, Come on back for that. Next week we're going to look at the denial of the resurrection by the religious establishment of Jesus' day. And we're just going to kind of examine the various ways that uh, people who are faced with the resurrection 
Like, it's kind of undeniable. Still find ways to deny it. So come back next week for that. But this story is tremendous, and this story is absolutely foundational to our faith. At sunup, on the first day of the week. So Sabbath now, Saturday officially being over, and the sun rises, and they're up, moving around, and the two Marys, Mary Mary, not the gospel singers, <laughs> 2,000 years prior, Mary and Mary, they, they uh, go to the tomb to put spices on the body, we find out later. And when they arrive at the tomb in verse 2, the scene that they come to would actually be somewhat horrifying. Matthew steps back for us in verses 2 through 4 and kind of gives us some backstory here as to what they found at the tomb. It says, Behold, there was a great earthquake. Four. You see that four right there? Um, that word four mean, it gives us the foundation for, uh, or the, the reason for what caused the earthquake. Four, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone. It's not the earthquake that caused the stone to be rolled. It's the stone rolling that caused an earthquake. This great event of an angel coming into physical, visible form like lightning, clothes as, as the brightest white you've ever seen, this appearance of this angel and this cosmic event of a stone being rolled and Jesus Christ being raised from the dead causes an earthquake. What else would we expect when Jesus rises from the dead? I would say, of course it's causing an earthquake. Now, the guards in verse 4 freak out and pass out. They became like dead men. They didn't die. They became like, meaning they passed out. Have you ever been so scared you passed out? Anybody? Me neither. <laughs> Daniel, can you explain this? Is this possible? We got a doctor in the room. What's that? A vase of eagle? I got you. Look that up in your uh, medical textbook when you get home. I mean, this is some serious fear. They trembled and they, they passed. So these ladies show up. Stone has been moved. Roman guard is passed out. And not to mention, there is a freaky looking angel sitting on top of the stone. And we know that they're afraid because in verse 5, the angel says, do not be afraid. It, it assumes, in, in the way that that's written there, that they are already fearing. So the angel gives them this message. First, he hushes them and says, do not be afraid. Then secondly, he says, I want you to go uh, forward and, and, uh, and go to Galilee and tell the disciples, that, or go to the disciples, I'm sorry, and tell the disciples that Jesus is going to Galilee before them, ahead of them, where uh, he's going to, to meet them. So you could sort of see the difference now with the women's response than the, the Roman guard's response. The women still have fear, but it's mixed with joy, and, and the women go running, uh, probably a full sprint 
Uh, yet before they even get out of the garden, Jesus appears right in front of them, physically raised from the dead. And it says, Jesus says, greetings in verse 9. And that word greetings, has a, uh, it's, it's sort of like a joyful kind of hello. It might be the way that we say, hey, you know, like when you're happy and joyful, you're, you're happy to see somebody. This is sort of the response that Jesus has as he sees the women coming to him. Hey, greetings. At which point, the women just immediately fall down before him, grab hold of his feet, and in verse 9, they worship him. Which, by the way, just a side note here, says a lot about the divinity of Jesus Christ. We cannot just say that Jesus was a great being. We have to admit, if we believe the Scriptures, that Jesus was indeed divine. He was God. Why do we believe that from this verse? Well, in Acts chapter 10, verses 25 and 26, Peter enters the house, it says, and Cornelius, another man, meets Peter, and Cornelius falls down at the feet of Peter and worships him. It's actually the very same wording. Peter's response, however, to Cornelius is, stand up, I'm only a man. Meaning only God is to be worshipped. So Cornelius, get up! Don't, don't, don't grab my feet! Don't worship me! Don't do that! Jesus doesn't say, stand up. Jesus doesn't say, I'm only a man. Jesus doesn't say, get up, don't worship me. Jesus receives the worship of the women. This demands that at least Jesus believed he was God. And I tend to want to believe somebody who died and rose again. So Jesus now repeats, if you see in verse 10, he repeats the same instructions that the angels give. He says those same two things. He says, do not be afraid. So stop, stop fearing. Hush. Peace. Do not be afraid. And then secondly, go tell the disciples. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there, there I'm going to have a meeting with them. Now, on one hand, we have to recognize that this is given to us as proof that Jesus rose from the dead. That is one major intent of this passage. Uh, David Platt in his commentary on Matthew highlights a couple common uh, objections to the resurrection of Jesus and answers them from, from this passage, points out how uh, absurd some of these uh, things are, however uh, much we want to believe them. So, for example, first, Muhammad said that it wasn't really Jesus that hung on the cross, it was somebody else that hung on the cross. And so that sort of explained how Jesus was alive after the death. The problem with that is Muhammad lived 600 years after the fact and just thought this up. Uh, there were those who were there, witnesses, that wrote that Jesus died on the cross. And I don't think the religious leaders would have got it wrong. Uh, it's just an absurd objection. Secondly, the modernists uh, say that, well, maybe Jesus was, Jesus was hurt very badly. And uh, he was laid in the, in, the, in the grave, and he sort of revived in the grave and was able to push the rock away. He never really died. He was just hurt. To believe that, we would have to assume that Jesus, Jesus went through six different trials with no sleep, was uh, brutally whipped, he uh, had thorns crushed into his skull, he had nails driven through his hands and 
his feet. He hung on a cross for hours, and then he had a spear stuck into his lung, and water came out. He was then taken down from the cross, uh, wrapped in some cloth, and stuck into a grave, and had no medical attention for a couple days, but somehow survived, and not just survived, but revived, and was able to get up and like push a stone out of the way. My skeptic friends say, eh, yeah, that's absurd as well. <laughs> Even my skeptic friends say that that, that, that that cannot be. Well, what are some other thoughts? Uh, thirdly, we could say that, uh, the disciples and the women were delusional, meaning they had this powerful hallucination. They so, wanted, so badly wanted Jesus to rise from the dead that they believed they saw him. It was a hallucination. The challenge with that is we saw not just the women uh, who, who see him, but also the 12 disciples who must have had the same hallucination. But then also he appears to 500 people who, at, at one time. The likelihood of 500 people at one time having the same hallucination. Uh, challenging. Uh, not to mention this hallucination lasted for 40 days. And he ate and drank. Like, I don't care how much LSD you're on. There are no hallucinations that powerful, all right? It could not have been a hallucination. Um, there's the wrong tomb theory, that the women went to the wrong tomb. One challenge is, uh, textually, we see that they know in chapter 27 where the tomb is, so Matthew's trying to solve that for us right off the bat. But then also, secondly, beyond that, just sort of culturally speaking, the religious leaders did not want rumors of Jesus alive going around. And uh, if it was the wrong tomb, they could have produced the body. The problem is, is that the establishment could not produce the body of Jesus. So the wrong tomb theory, then, would be absurd. Fifthly, some might say, well, it's just a made-up story. The disciples, over 20, 30, 40 years, made this up and found a way to kind of codify it and put it, put it together in words. The, the challenge with that, um, while it's plausible, the, the challenge with that theory is, is that every single one, except for one, almost all of the disciples went to death because of this claim of the resurrection, defending the claim of the resurrection, as well as a whole bunch of other people who claimed to see, see him. Meaning to claim that Jesus rose from the dead didn't put you in a popular group. To claim that Jesus rose from the dead within this Roman Empire meant your life. And not one of them, there's not, not a, a record of anybody who said, wait a second, wait, 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 wait. Before you pour that hot tar all over my body, it was just a hoax. We, Peter, it was Peter's idea. He made it up. All right, we cool now? Nobody, nobody did that. I mean, it's just historically remarkable if it was a hoax. Maybe, I mean, plausible, but not very plausible. Pascal once said, he said, I, I believe the witness who gets his throat slit. We just asked a question from a purely... Uh, historical standpoint, we have to all admit it's very plausible that Jesus actually rose from the dead. 
I would say this, it's most plausible that Jesus rose from the dead. It's very hard historically to get around the resurrection. And even for those who are skeptical, I don't know if Jesus rose. I agree with Tim Keller who once said to skeptics, you should at least hope that the resurrection happened. You should at least want that to be true. Because what the resurrection of Jesus says is that this earth matters. What the resurrection of Jesus said is that bodies matter. And so if we then say, I care about this earth, and I care about bodies, yet there is no resurrection of the dead, and one day we're just going to all die and everything's going to burn up, that kind of like defeats your whole argument. <laughs> if bodies matter, and if the, resurre- or, I'm sorry, if the earth matters, then we should at least hope that the resurrection is true. Because what tells us is that this earth matters and that your bodies matter. But even more than that, the resurrection changes everything for us. Let me just show you in the text a couple different ways in which the resurrection changes everything. There are these two themes that are repeated in in these two commands. Did you notice that? So when when the women are talking to the angels, they receive a command, and it is, do not fear, and go and tell the disciples. When they meet up with Jesus, they receive the same command, just worded a little differently, do not fear, and go tell the disciples. Let's break these down a little bit. First, the resurrection of Jesus Christ turns your fear into joy. The resurrection of Jesus Christ turns your fear into joy. We all want joy. Amen? Like four of you? Do you want... Oh, we all want joy. Amen? C.S. Lewis once wrote about our seeking for joy. He said, he said our, Lord, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink, sex, ambition, while infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to make mud pies in the slum instead of taking the invitation for a holiday at the sea, we are too far easily pleased. Playing around in the mud, looking for joy in the dirt of life, as opposed to coming face to face with Jesus Christ and finding infinite joy. Let me ask you this question. Where do we find joy? It's not in unbelief. One of the greatest skeptics ever, he wrote toward the end of his life, I wish I was never born. It's not in pleasure. 
one of the greatest playboys of all time, toward the end of his life, wrote, the worm, the canker, and grief are all I have. We do not find joy in money. One of the richest man, men our country has ever known toward the end of his life said this, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. We do not find joy in fame or in position. One famous American toward the end of her life said, youth is a mistake. Adulthood is a struggle. In old age a regret. In Christ alone do we find this joy. In Christ alone, encountering face to face the risen Christ, that is where we find joy. Contrast the guards' response to the risen Christ with the women. Look at the guards. Think of it. These are, these are Roman soldiers. All right, breastplate, armor, sword, baddest, biggest army in the world, Roman soldiers who are passed out because of fear. And two little ladies come out. Why? Now wait, they do have fear at first, right? They have fear, but then an angel says something to them. An angel declares a message to them, and what do they do? They believe the message that they hear. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Now they're running with fear mixed with joy. I, I picture like a, uh, maybe a, a young lady on her wedding day, standing at the back of the auditorium, about to walk down the aisle, trembling, terrified, right, ladies? But with joy. Thrilled. And then they come to Jesus, and Jesus repeats the same command. Do not be afraid. I've told you this before. The command that Jesus gives more than any other commands out of his own lips is what? Do not fear. Be not afraid. Why? Why? It's because fear is probably, I think, our biggest problem. I think so much of what drives our life, if you really keep pulling back the various layers, you know what you find at the bottom of all of that? Fear. Fear of being alone. Fear of not having enough. Fear of being in the cold. Fear of dying with nobody. Fear of being broke. Fear, I think, is one of our greatest problems. But secondly, Jesus destroyed it. Jesus destroys fear for us. And so His most common reoccurring command for us is what? Come on, help me out. Do not what? Do not fear. Do not be afraid. There is no fear in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. No fear in life. In that death, the greatest enemy is just kind of like moved out the way. No fear in life. Meaning like, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to worry. I don't have to have anxieties. Because the greatest thing that could 
strike me has been stricken, and that is death itself, defeated. Yes, we're still going to die, but the resurrection. No fear in life, no fear in death. Why? Because Jesus has the power to raise the dead. So as we die, as God helps us into death, we have no fear. Because Jesus has the power to raise us from the dead. Some people say, well, I get that, but I'm still like afraid of the experience of dying. Alistair Begg once said to that question, he said, well, if you knew the way that you were coming into the world, you're going to be inside some woman for nine months, you're going to be in fluid, not going to be able to breathe, but don't worry, you'll have like a tube going into your belly, and then at some point you're going to kind of like make your way out, you would say, ah, I think I'll just, you know. And uh, Beg goes on to say, you know, if God could help me get into the world, I think God can also help me get out of this world. We trust him. No fear in life. No fear in death. This is the power of the risen Christ in me. Now, is this true? Meaning, is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, is it true that it brings joy? Well, let's think about this for a moment. The, the, the Roman soldiers are knocked out. Didn't bring them joy. When I was in Ohio this last week, my brother and I, we were watching Netflix, and there's like this new comedian on Netflix, so we were watching this comedian. He's pretty funny. But he went for like this, kind of like this 10-minute little bit that was very sacrilegious, all right? Uh, just, um, I'll just jump right to my point. <laughs> he, he was talking about Jesus, and uh, he said, so you get this story of Jesus, and so Jesus was uh, born. This, I'm, I'm quoting him. Jesus was born that's cool. Jesus died. That's sad. Jesus rose from the dead. That's unexpected. Jesus is coming again. That's scary. And I thought to myself, what a theologically true statement for someone who's not in Christ to make. It is only good news if there's a way to get in Christ. You see? I mean, the fact that Jesus is judge is good for those who are in Christ, and it's not good for those who are not in Christ. He's raised to be the judge of the living and the dead. Our call at this point is to turn to Christ. It is to plead the blood of Christ. It is to run into Christ. Have you ever saw Christ and said, He's mine. I'm trusting in Him. I need to be in Him. I cannot stand before God in my rags. I cannot stand before God in my own righteousness. I need to be in Christ. Have you ever run to Christ as your refuge? Have you ever found Christ to be your help in a time of storm? Is Christ going to be your help in that greatest storm of His return and the final judgment? The answer is this. For all who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ, the answer is a resounding yes. He is for you. We plead the blood and He pleads our case. 
meaning we, 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 we just fall into His grace. Which means if Jesus is not there to catch me, I'm going to hit that ground. I'm not hanging on to anything else. I'm letting go of everything else and I am falling into the grace of Jesus Christ. And he, He's got to catch me. He's got to catch me. If He doesn't catch me, I'm sunk. Are you tracking with me? This is what it means to trust in the risen Jesus Christ. But is He trustworthy? What are those three words? As He said. Secondly, the resurrection turns our humiliation into reconciliation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ turns our humiliation into reconciliation. I was a youth pastor for five years. And toward the end of my five years, there was this young man that I was pouring into. Uh, he fell away for a little while. And while he hit the bottom... Did I lose it? There we go. While he was hitting rock, I can't even think straight when I'm sorry. He used uh, cocaine. Now, um, one thing I've learned as a pastor for a number of years is that when somebody falls, what they often do is hide. Are you tracking with me? Which means I didn't see this young man for quite a while. He just kind of hid. Wouldn't return any calls. Couldn't find him. He hid. Why? It's a little word called, somebody said it, shame. Shame. We are ashamed. Shame comes with sin. I mean, let's think about the garden. What happens when Adam and Eve fall? They hide. They run. They have great shame. Now what we see in the resurrection is that Jesus turns our humiliation into reconciliation. Let me show you where I get that. Look at verse 7. This is... the first command to the women, and they receive it from the angel. And the angel says, Go quickly tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. What is significant about that? What is significant? What's significant about that is the fact that Jesus is going before them. He's already thinking of them. The moment he's risen from the dead, he's going to where he knows they're heading. Go find the disciples while they're on their way out of the city and let them know Jesus is on His way to meet you. What is significant about that? Well, let's think back. What just happened to the disciples? What just happened when Jesus was rejected? They scattered. They ran. They hid. In the moment of Jesus' greatest agony, His disciples failed him. Peter himself Peter himself We good? Peter himself denied Christ verbally three different times. 
Listen, if this was a Hollywood story, you can only imagine what Hollywood would do with this resurrected king, right? If this was a Hollywood story, he would rise from the dead and then take out his vengeance. Like, this would be a scary guy to be around. Like, where are my 12 or 11? Where are you guys? Like, Hollywood would just go crazy with this if Hollywood thought it up. If it was me, you know what I would do? I would sit right there in the tomb, just waiting for them. (laughs) They come to see the tomb. Hey, guys. Remember me. I want you to see Jesus' grace in all of this. He is not passive-aggressive. He is not seeking vengeance. What Jesus is doing is he's going to them to reconcile. The offended party seeking out reconciliation. The one who's been hurt initiating reconciliation. This goes all the way back to the garden. Who is it that goes looking for reconciliation? Adam or God? Nope. (laughs) Try again. God. The offended seeks out reconciliation. This is the way God works, not us. And listen, friends, God has come to you seeking your reconciliation. Now, as this goes on, Jesus, in verse 10, repeats the command, but he changes a word. Go and tell. He doesn't call them my disciples. What does he call them? My brothers. I mean, they've just turned their backs on him. Like, I don't know if you guys follow social media, but when that happens on social media, they're not calling each other brothers. They drop people. They disown people. We're not family anymore. Jesus is offended and he calls them brothers. And he says, I am going to them. Not out of vengeance, but out of a kind of brotherly love. Jesus seeks reconciliation. The offended initiates. This is the way we are to treat others, by the way. If we are going to follow Christ, we cannot be hurt and offended and sit back waiting to get them them in some way. Or be passive-aggressive and just not answer the phone call when when they call. Or seek out vengeance and find ways to, to hurt them in return. No, we cannot act like that if we are followers of Jesus Christ. But what's more is this. We're not saved because we follow Jesus Christ in the right way. We're saved because Jesus Christ came at us like that. We're saved because Jesus Christ came to us and initiated reconciliation with us. How did he do it? He came to it, came to you through a friend, Nick, that knocked on your door. Some guy who was willing to sit down with you and open the Bible with you. Jesus came to you. You didn't go to him. I wonder, each one of you, how did Jesus come to you? 
And maybe for those of you who are not in Christ, now is the moment. Jesus is coming to you in this moment. Initiating reconciliation so that we might be in Christ. So that we might have Christ pleading on our behalf. Now with all of this, what is the women's response? They fall down and they worship Jesus Christ. Something about the resurrected Messiah triggers worship. Encountering Jesus Christ triggers worship. And this was on a Sunday. And Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for the last 2,000 years, you know what Christians do? They get together and they encounter Jesus Christ through his body, the church, through his word. They come into an encounter with the risen Christ and it does something. What it does is it triggers worship. And that's all we're doing every Sunday. You know, I think back in August 2008, we had a, a tiny, like, six people, a little Bible study, and we met on Sundays. We sought the ex- to, to encounter the risen Christ. A couple years later, we had a congregation meeting together on Sundays. What we're doing is we're just coming together to worship the risen Christ. It triggers something in us. It awakens a sense of awe within us. And we, friends, have the assurance that Jesus is coming again for us. The resurrection is not just a one-time occurrence, but we will all, in the same way, be raised from the dead. How do we know that? What is our assurance? Listen, if I said, I'm going to give you a million dollars, D, I'm going to give you a million dollars. What is your assurance in that? You, you got my word. So you think I'm going to come through? <laughs> Look, this is not one of those like illustrations where I actually give you a million dollars if you say yes. <laughs> he gave it, yes, Exactly. What is our assurance? What is our assurance? God has given us His Word. And He's given us a down payment in the Holy Spirit. He ain't going to lose his Holy, his Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus Christ will come through with all that He has promised because He is a man of His Word. He has risen from the dead. Three words. As He said. God is a promise-making God. Jesus Christ says if we confess our sins and believe, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We are saved. How do we know that we are saved? It's because He said so. Jesus said, you already are clean because of the word I spoke to you. How do you know that you're clean before God? Is it because you feel clean? Thank you, Tony. It's because he said so. That's how we know. Remain in me and I in you, Jesus said. How do we know that Jesus is going to remain in us? Because he said so. 
I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. How do we know that Jesus will never leave us? Because he said so. No one will snatch you out of my hand. How do we know that we will not be snatched out of the hand of Jesus Christ? Because he said so. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. How do we know that he's preparing a place for us? Because he said so. And I will come again to receive you as my own. How do we know that Jesus is going to come again, raise us from the dead, and receive us as his own? It's because he said so. There in the ground his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth. In glorious day, up from the ground he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its sting on me, for I am his. And he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. As he said. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time that we can come into your word. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that we will not just simply be moved by it right now through the reading and the preaching and the singing of your word, but that we will be moved by this truth of the resurrection tomorrow and the next day and into the rest of our life. I pray, God, that you will awaken faith in this room. I pray, God, that for the faith that has already been woken in this room, I pray that you will keep it, that you will continue to be a promise-making, a promise-keeping God to us, for us, and our salvation. It's in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.